following content is provided by Mythgard Institute. Mythgard, making scholarly discussion of fantasy and science fiction literature free and open to everyone. Very good. Welcome. Welcome to session 22 of the Lamor D'Arthur class. We are cruising our way now through the book of Sir Tristram here in the middle, uh, uh, moving ever closer uh, mo moving ever closer to uh, the quest for the Holy Grail. Um, but uh, uh, thanks for joining me this evening. Two quick announcements before we uh, before we get uh, 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 going, before we dig into things. Uh, three. Three quick things that I want to say at the beginning. So first, announcements. Um, uh, neither of these things is new, but I just wanted to remind you because both of them are getting closer. Uh, one, of course, is Texmoot. Our next regional moot is Texmoot down in Waco, Texas on the 19th of January. Uh, so I hope you'll be able to join us there. Uh, it looks like it's going to be a really great crowd down there, a big crowd um, uh, this year, even bigger than last year, I think. So uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. So I hope that you'll be able to uh, join us down there if you are anywhere around. Uh, so uh, I definitely commend that to you. The second thing is our, uh, our, our sale, our promotion of, uh, for Anytime Audit. So uh, we have our, our holiday Anytime Audit gift certificate deal that we've been running now for a little while, and it will go through the end of the, uh, through the, end of the month. So there's still time. Um, if, you th if you've thought about doing an Anytime Audit, which means getting asynchronous access to um, the lecture sessions plus all of the reading assignments and reading materials, um, plus you are considered a student for a year after that. So uh, you also get access to our library resources and everything else. It's a pretty awesome deal. Um, oh, it's only till Christmas Eve. Okay, great, Sharon. I couldn't remember which one it was. So it's, that's coming up soon. So that goes through that goes through Christmas Eve. So uh, uh, through the 24th, that is next Monday. Um, so we're, we're running down in time there. And of course, it's perfectly permissible to get a gift certificate for yourself. So it also sort of doubles as a sale on our entire, you know, archive of Anytime Audits. So I uh, definitely wanted to commend that. Lots of people have been taking advantage of that. It's a really, uh, it's a really awesome gift. Um, uh, you can give them a gift, give you know people a gift certificate, and then they can choose whatever course from our entire archive they want themselves. So you don't even have to try to guess which one they would most like. So, anyway, uh, wanted to remind you of those two things: Textmoot and our Anytime Audit uh, 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 discount here for the next, uh, still for the next little bit less than a week. The third thing I wanted to mention is just to remind you, and I'll remind you again at the end of class. We will not be meeting next week uh, because I'll be observing Boxing Day. No, I'm just kidding. But that's going to be a busy week. and I'm just not going to be. It's, you know, it's a holiday week. Not going to be around. So we won't have class next week, but we will have class the week after that, which will be the 2nd of January. Things will be back in gear as normal that week. So uh, we should be fine for that. Um, all right. Ready to go? Are you ready to uh, uh, get into some <laughs> wild and wacky adventures here this evening? Um, we, um, yeah, Stephen, it is not just you. I think that Mallory is uh, getting better as a writer. It's hard, Stephen, because on the one hand, um, yeah, when you go back and you, you read the, some of the early chapters again and come back, yes, things do flow much better. Now, in part, it's, it's also 
always the experience of us getting better as readers as well. You know, it's uh, that is to say, like, we just get more accustomed to Maori's language and his prose and everything. But really, it's... um. Uh, I agree. It is not just us that, that that's getting better. It is Maori as well. And there are still a lot of things that we can see that Maori not real interested in, such as chronology, for instance. Right. Um, uh, we like to just have people go off and have children who then grow up and take part in the story while everyone else has been just kind of frozen in place. Right. That we don't. Uh, um we don't, uh, you know, no time passes for them while the other, while the child is off growing up. Um, I, th- I suspect, by the way, a similar kind of thing is in um, play with the, like, cross-generational romances and things like Sir Lamarack and uh, uh, Morgaz, right? Um, but Karina, just rolling with it is exactly the thing to do. Yeah, don't try to keep... If you start trying to make a like a table, you know, a chart in your head of like, okay, so if it's if it's taken, you know, Alessandro Le Orphelin, you know, like uh, uh, you know, fifteen years or whatever to grow up, um, then like, so how long has it been since you know Tristram was made a knight of the Round Table? Don't, don't, just don't uh, worry about it. It's clearly not a question we're supposed to be. Uh, asking. So yeah, time is an illusion, Karita. That's just the way, uh, just the thing to keep in mind. All right. Well, we almost got through uh, the uh, material that I had last time. Just a couple things. We ended with the uh, uh, remarkable uh, and quite unexpected decapitation of Queen Morgaz by her son, uh, Serga Harris. Um, Soon after that, uh, Sir Dinadin uh, is wandering out and he meets with two of Geharis's brothers. Um, yeah, Catriona, exactly. Catriona is thinking about Morgan Le Fay still trying to do, <laughs> seduce young studly knights who are at least one, and really it seems likely two generations younger than she is. Just, just again, roll with it. Don't worry about it. It's all good. Um, anyhow, okay, so this remember i i want you to keep in mind the murder of morgaz as we work into this and the kind of the way that uh gawain and his siblings are being sort of fleshed out here when they understood that it was sir dinadan um that's uh of course it's uh agravain and mordred who are meeting him here they were more wroth than they were before for they hotted him out of measure because of sir lamarack for Sir Dinadan had such a custom that he loved all good knictes that were valiant, and he hated although that were destroyers of good knictes, and there was none that hated Sir Dinadan, but though that every were called murderers. Then spoke the hurt knict that Bruce Sounds Pite had chased, his name was Dallin, and sighed, If thou be Sir Dinadan, thou slew my father. It meeked well be so, said Sir Dinadan. But then it was in my defence, and at his request. Be my head, said, said Dalin, thou shalt die therefore. And therewith he dressed his spear and his shield, and to make a short tal, Sir Dinadan smote him down off his horse, that his neck was nigh broken. And in the same wise he smote Sir Mordred and Sir Agravine. And after, in the quest of the Sancreal, 
cowardly and feloncely they slew Sir Dinadan, which was a great damage, for he was a great boarder and a passing good knight. Mordred and Agravaine, who are the worst of Gowan's brothers. Sir Agravaine has not played a very large role yet, but his role is coming. Um, Sir Mordred and Sir Agravaine are sort of the two peas in a pod there, just as Sir Gareth is by far um, the um, uh, is by far the the worst of uh, uh, just as Sir Gareth is I gotta keep my head straight here just Sir Gareth is by far the best of, of Gawain's brothers uh, so Sir Mordred and Sir Agravaine together are um, are are the worst. So, okay. Um, what is a, what is a border? A joker, a jester. This is what Dinadin is famous for. Now we've already noticed this, right? That Sir Dinadin is the cheeky knight, right? He's the one who's always, uh, uh, you know, he's the sarcastic knight. Um, and we've seen, of course, that his heart is always in the right place. He doesn't, you know, he was, you remember him complaining about Sir Tristram, saying that Sir Tristram is insane for wanting to attack the 30 knights, right? And Sir Dinadin is like, no, I think I'll stand and watch you, right? Um, we've seen this way in which um, Sir Dinadin is consistently sort of gently poking fun of and deflating these good knights, but that when it comes to it, he always actually has their back and, and himself does very well. You know, we haven't gotten an official ranking for Sir Dinadin, but he's clearly pretty high up there, right? I mean, he defeats many very good knights. He can't compete in the top five exactly, right? I mean, he's not Lancelot or Tristram or Lamarack or, uh, uh, or, or uh, Pelamides, but, um, but he's uh, you know, probably top ten, I mean, he's he is a, a passing good connect. Um but first, before he's identified as a passing good connect, he's a great boarder. He's a he's a joker. He's funny, and that is the element of Sir Dinadin's character that gets more and more emphasized as we move forward. And today's reading is really sort of the uh, the centerpiece of Sir Dinadin's comical career. Um, he not only himself is very funny and plays jokes on people. He invites humor uh, and uh, is the occasion for as many moments of active, uh, uh, you know, comedy uh, as anyone else uh, in the entire um, in the entire work. Um, yeah. <laughs> Curry, this suggests a Mallory drinking game. Take a drink whenever you see Tamaka Short Tal or some variation of that. Uh, yeah, 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 that would be good. Um, yeah, just don't, don't, uh, uh, don't drink whenever you see him say, now turn we, right? Because uh, that would be, that would be troubling. The bigger point, though, that I wanted to make here is... Again, I was speaking last time of the sense in which we're getting lines drawn. Um, this is something that I, I think is, is, is something that is perceptible as we move through this text. Um, there are the good guys and the bad guys. And the bad guys are holding together more and more. Um, and...
Arthur's world here is already, in a sense, on the decline. I say in a sense because it has not yet reached its apex. Um, you know, Arthur, according to the sort of technical frame, Arthur is still on his way up uh, Fortune's Wheel. Um, we will reach the high water mark of the Arthurian court um, at a particular time, you know, at a particular time and a noteworthy occasion, um, and it's not yet. But despite that, I think to me it seems that there's a sense in which we've already passed it. There's a sense in which the decline of the court is already coming. Um, the murder of Morgaz, I think, is one of the signs of it, right? The Think of the difference between what happens with Morgaz and Lamarack and what happened with King Pelinor, right? In both occasions, we had those moments, right? The moment of Sir Gawain and uh, Sir Gaharis conspiring together, planning, plotting, right? What are we going to do? We're, you know, we, that guy murdered our father. King Pelinor murdered our father. He didn't, right? But uh, anyway, they, them saying, them believing that King Pelinor killed their father. And here Arthur is um, privileging him, right? Arthur is putting him at this, uh, you know, really important place in the round table. And that was the moment, you'll remember, when young Sir Gawain, who was just recently made a knight, and Sir Gaharis, who's not yet made been made a knight, uh, and is still himself a squire, they're like, okay, we don't we don't want to put up with this. But the plan, right? Like it's still it's very off the stage, right? It's not, it's very quiet. Uh, they don't make a big deal of it, right? When it comes down around to Sir Lamorak now, a generation later, we're talking about King Pelinor's son and Lamorak's relationship with their mother, um, their widowed mother, right? Um, they, um, they don't... It's much more open, right? It's a much more public thing that they do. The fact that Mallory is digressing here to tell us about the future plans of Sir Mordred and Sir Agravaine and how they are going to uh, band together in order to to feloniously and cowardly uh, slay Sir Dinadan. And again, notice what is being told about Sir Dinadan. What is Sir Dinadan's custom? Right? What is the, you know, yes, he's a great joker, but the primary thing emphasized about Sir Dinadan is that he has such a custom that he loved all good knights that were valiant, and he hated all those that were destroyers of good knights. He likes good guys and, and dislikes bad guys. Um, and uh, everybody who hates, there's nobody who doesn't like Sir Dinadan, right? Unless they're murderers. Um, he's like the moral litmus test for knights, right? Um, if you're, if, you know, if, if, if your intentions are good, if you're one of the good guys, you're going to like Sir Dinadan and he's going to like you. Um, but more and more is Arthur's court itself. Remember how we had like, remember with uh, the tale of Sir Lancelot back in the old days now, um, when he was fighting people like Sir Tarquin, right, and Sir Paris, who you know the the maiden raper, right, um, uh, we they were on the outskirts, right, literally like in the woods. In 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 many cases, you know, there were these 
opposition knights out there who didn't conform to the Arthurian uh, court. And it's one of the things that Lancelot, we saw Lancelot doing, was going around and getting up in the business of people like that, right? Um, to sort of stand up for what knighthood should be and to, to try to clean up the countryside. Um, now we're finding this infection in Arthur's court itself. And apart from, again, that one little moment with Gawain and a reminder of it at the end of the tale of Sir Gareth when Sir Gareth rejects Gawain and distances himself from Gawain because Sir Gawain is a murderer. Right? So apart from those, there's, there's, you know, Sir Gawain was like the bad apple. Kay was rude, but he wasn't a murderer. You know, he wasn't, uh, wasn't doing any of these things. Um, yeah, yeah. Endeavor, this is exactly, uh, yeah, C.S. Lewis talks about this in uh, that hideous strength, and he's thinking about Maori explicitly uh, when he uh, when he talks about this. And again, you can see there is now like a faction of knights uh, among Arthur's knights who are murderers, right? I mean, in part, it's just like the rest of Gawain's siblings growing up, but um, but it's more than just that. And again, I think that we can see these lines being drawn more clearly uh, as we move as we move through. Um, and Zach, I, I, I don't have a clear answer to your question, but I think your question is a really important one to be asking, which is, what does this do, you know, essentially to our reading of Arthur himself? You know, is what's his role or non-role in this or his sort of his level of responsibility? What does it tell us about Arthur uh, that this is happening and sort of happening under his nose? Um, it's a great question. Like I said, we, we get very little of him. So I don't um, <clears throat> I'm not quite sure how to answer that. We're going to look at the passage, which I think is most uh, the the only one passage where we get um any uh, uh, real evidence, I think, about that question. But it's it's an important thing. Um, and yes, Jennifer, you're right that Gawain does take it for granted that Arthur will protect him from the consequences of his actions. Remember when the story was following Sir Lamorak there for a while, right? In that moment when he had to avenge, when Sir Gawain, he saw Sir Gawain act in the wrong, right? When Sir Gawain just came and stole that other guy's damsel and just went off with her. Um, and then the guy came and fought Sir Gawain. And even though Gawain's in the wrong, Sir Lamorak is like, I've got... And, and remember, Gawain was like, I'm nephew and a King Arthur, you know, and, and again, he really was using that as a bludgeon to justify his actions or at least to protect himself uh, from reprisals for his actions. And Jennifer, it does seem he's not wrong, right? I mean, we have no reason to think that Arthur has been holding him to task or, you know, that uh, that he's not justified in his thoughts there. And that's a little dis disturbing. I mean, I, I do think that we can see a certain amount of rot uh, uh, beginning here already in Arthur's court. And it's important, I think, to see that as Mallory is depicting this, the rot is not, it doesn't begin with Sir Lancelot, right? Lancelot and Guinevere are going to be at the core of the problems. You know, when things start falling apart at the end, um, Lancelot and Guinevere are going to be at the heart of that. But they're not here. Now, it doesn't start with them. Um, it's not about that initially. And I think that that's an important piece of context for us to be remembering as we move forward. All right. Uh, King Mark, you may remember, 
this is after King Mark is there at Arthur's court and Arthur has rebuked him and he has reconciled Tristram and King Mark to his, that is Arthur's, satisfaction, right? And sent them off and is like, see, I solved this problem. You remember we looked last time at the passage where Lancelot feels the need to reinforce Arthur's command by his own personal threat, right? If you do anything to Tristram, King Mark, I'm going to come and kill you with my own hands, right? Um, As if, and he has good reason, I think, to think that King Mark is going to take that threat more seriously than the threat of Arthur's displeasure, it would seem. Um, And again, you know, I think about the, the, you know, Zach thinking again about Arthur's position, one thing that we see about Arthur through that section there, uh, and we see it again here too, uh, not right here in this passage, but in this section, Arthur's a kind of, uh, um, I don't know if oblivious is the right word, naive. I mean, that seems like a, a funny thing to say about Arthur, but he brags to Lancelot, right? I have set them at accord, right? I made peace between King Mark and Sir Tristram, right? Isn't this great? Aren't you pleased? And Lancelot basically rebukes him, right? I mean, he's like, accord? Like, what are you talking? Are you an idiot? Right? Like, if you buy that, holy cow, you're a sucker. And so he goes after them and, um, uh, and and that's when he makes his threat, right? So it's not just, you know, having Lancelot be Arthur's number one knight and, you know, therefore the threat of Lancelot's personal reprisal, that's kind of implicit already in Arthur's commands, right? If you disobey Arthur's commands, then you have to deal with Arthur and his knights, which includes Sir Lancelot. So the, the idea that Sir Lancelot would um, help to undergird the authority of King Arthur um, with his own, you know, with the force of his own hands, that's normal. That's perfectly okay. Again, it's part of one. Of, it's one of the things that Arthur's authority is based on. Really, is the strength of his court and 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 the knights who are the fact that he has the greatest knights in the world, uh, who are there at his court. Um, that's no, but the way that Lancelot does it suggests that it's like that implication is not enough. Um, he has to. He feels that he has to go. And sort of show King Mark, I'm on to you, man, right? Uh, and if you do what I think you're going to do, I want you to know I am personally coming after you. Um, anyway, King Mark, after this, sends him, that is Arthur, letters. Um, and uh, here's the letters that we get. So, But so privily and secretly he sent letters unto King Arthur and unto Queen Guinevere and unto Sir Launcelot. So the varlet, that is the guy, dude who's delivering the letters, so the varlet departed and found the king and the queen in Wallace at Carleon. And as the king and the queen was at mass, the varlet come with the letters. And when mass was done, the king and the queen opened the letters privily. And to begin, the king's letters spake wonderly short unto King Arthur, and bade him enter met with himself and with his wife, and of his knictis, for he was able to rule his wife and his knictis. And when King Arthur understood the letter, he mused of many things, and thought of his sister's wardes, Queen Morgan le Fay, that she had sighed betwixt Queen Guinevere and Sir Launcelot. And in this thought he studied a great while. Um, to enter met with himself means to consider, 
Think this over carefully, Arthur. And that's what we see Arthur doing, right? He's studying a great while. He's really thinking about it. Then he bethought him again how his own sister was his enemy, and that she haunted the queen and Sir Launcelot to the death, and so he put that all out of his thought. Than King Arthur read the letter again, and the letter Claus sighed that King Mark took Sir Tristram for his mortal enemy, and wherefore he put King Arthur out of doubt, he would be revenged of Sir Tristram. Than was King Arthur wroth with King Mark. Okay, so... Arthur's thought process here is interesting, right? King Mark sends him this letter, and he's like, you really need to put some thought into your queen and her knights, right? And he's like, hmm, my queen and her knights, okay. Uh, and then he's like, well, my sister does keep talking about Lancelot and Guinevere, right? Maybe there's something there. Maybe I should think about that. But then, of course, he draws the perfectly logical conclusion. Now, hang on a second. The people who are telling me this are highly motivated, right? These are not objective people. Um, these are my enemies. And what's more, like, you know, Morgan Le Fay is particularly, she hates Guinevere and Lancelot to the death, right? Um, she wants to destroy them. So, of course, she's going to say that. What reason is there to think that this might be true just because Morgan Le Fay and... Um, uh, and King Mark suggest that it might be true, right? Um, so, again, the thing that I would emphasize, it's not that he is totally unaware that there are signs of affection between Lancelot and Guinevere, right? That is not the case. The question is only, do they love each other paramour? It's not, are they attached to each other? Are they devoted to each other? Is he serving her as her knight? That's totally okay as long as they don't sleep together, right? Um, that's really the only question. Um, and uh, remember the message for Arthur and for Lancelot that Morgan Le Fay put on the shield that she gave Sir Tristram after she captured him, right? That um, uh, knight standing on the heads of the king and the queen, right? Um, and so the, 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 the servage and uh, bondage that she was emphasizing there, like Sir Lancelot is, is enslaving the two of them, um, that he is ruling over both the king and the queen. Um, that was specifically her message. And again, so is Lancelot guilty of that? No, no, there's really no... Uh, so when he dismisses this idea... Is King Arthur being naive? No, he's not being naive. Again, and, and I think Mallory makes this point pretty strongly here, had he persisted in suspiciousness, right? That would have been naive. Naive of him not to suspect the motivations of King Mark and Morgan Le Fay, right? Not to consider the source of these rumors uh, that, he, that he knows. Now, Devra, you are very right that it has been quite rare that we have seen Mallory describing the internal mental states of somebody in this kind of detail, right? The, uh, the detail with which we are given Arthur's full logical process here is very unusual. 
um, so far. We're sometimes told what people are feeling. Um, we sometimes hear what they're thinking, but very rarely have we just been sort of walked through an entire line of thought like this. And it, it does make for a very interesting and unusual passage uh, in that way. Um, but you'll notice, of course, the other thing that um, Arthur concludes from this. He concludes he was wrong, right? King Mark and Tristram are not accorded. Mark is, is going to be revenged on Sir Tristram. Right. He's not given over his threats against Tristram. And so King Arthur is wroth with King Mark. So what does he do about it? Nothing. He does nothing. The text doesn't rebuke him for that. We get no positive evidence that anybody thinks that's bad. Right. Nobody says the first word of condemnation against Arthur for not stepping in with King Mark. But it's hard for me to resist that line of thinking. Um, we'll come back to this in just a minute, one or two passages from here. Um, oh, yeah, Before we get to the Saracen Armada, um, one last note, and I didn't have a particular passage in mind for this, but just uh, one single reflection on the the rather long incident of the attack of the Sassoins into Cornwall, right? The actual war, not tournaments. Uh, this is for the first actual warfare that we've seen in quite some time. Um, uh, when King Mark is being attacked um, by the Sassoins who are trying to lay Cornwall under tribute again, like it was, like it had been to Ireland before, uh, before uh, Sir Tristram uh, killed Sir Marhaus and, and set them free. Um, Remember that I was saying that it seems to me fairly clear that one of the primary functions of Tristram and Isolde in this entire book is to establish a kind of a template to um, provide not just foreshadowing. It's more than that, like a model, right? Um, they are the ones who go before so that having seen all of these things that happen to them and some of the things that they do wrong and some of the things that they do well and, and all these other things we're being prepared, right? The, uh, the, 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 they're blazing the trail. Um, and they're there, uh, to provide either a foil or a model or, um, you know, a sort of a predecessor for what we're going to see with Lancelot and Guinevere. I think therefore that it is important that we are getting near the end of the stories of Sir Tristram. Um, you'll notice we've, we got almost no Tristram stories in today's reading, we're not going to get a whole lot of... We're almost done with Tristram. Um, we're going to see him again, but we're not going to get too much more of him. Uh, uh, Mallory's pretty much done with Sir Tristram, what he wanted to do with Sir Tristram. However, um, it's it seems to me important that kind of the end of the Tristram story... Again, it's not exactly the end. It doesn't have an ending per, uh, uh, per se, but... Um, this, uh, you know, one of the final major incidents of the Tristram story, as Mallory tells it, tells a story of the king at war, the king's realm under threat, um, and only having, he, the only th thing that can save him is having his greatest knight there. 
King Mark doesn't want to call on Sir Tristram. Sir uh, King Mark resents the heck out of uh, Sir Tristram's help in every way and on every occasion. And yet, if he didn't have Sir Tristram, he would be lost and his kingdom would be lost. Right. So we get a glimpse. Yeah, Arthur is not going to be King Mark. In some ways, that's going to be one of the biggest differences between the Mark, Isolde, and Tristram story uh, compared to the Arthur, Guinevere, and Lancelot story. But um, despite the differences in the kings, we get this model, right? A king whose realm and whose entire power is in is under threat, whose realm is under threat, um, and the only thing that can save him is being able to call in his number one knight. Yeah. Um, that's a thing that is an important precedent to, to establish, right? Something which maybe uh, uh, might be relevant to Arthur and Lancelot down the road. Um, okay. But now let's, um, let's move on to the, uh, 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 to the interjected story, uh, uh, the chronologically challenged story of uh, Sir Alessandre L'Orphelin. Um, uh, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on the story of Sir Alessandre. My subtitle for the story of Sir Alessandre would be What Might Have Been, right? Um, we get this in a couple other places. Um, it's interesting because if you think back to this is another one of those stories which is kind of like the story of Sir Gareth and the story of Sir Lacote Maltile, right? Um, the story of this young knight who comes in and who proves himself and who has, even like Sir Lacote Maltile, he has mementos of his father's death and is setting out to avenge his father's death. Unlike Sir Lacote Maltile, apparently he does not achieve that goal. But anyway, um, so once again, we have this story of the, um, you know, the enterprising new young knight who's breaking in uh, on the scene. Sir Gareth is the one who has by far the greatest success of the three, though Sir Alessander is pretty studly. Uh, uh, unlike Sir Lacote Maltau, which was interesting because it was like, as we talked about, it's like the story of a mediocre knight, a knight who's pretty good, but not one of the best knights in the world. So just sort of showing the adventures of a kind of run-of-the-mill knight with an interesting backstory was sort of an interesting move when we got the, the story of Lacote Mautau. However, Sir Alessandre is different. He's not going to amount to anything, right? He's going to kind of vanish. This is this is pretty much it for Sir Alessandre that we're going to get here, right? Um, he's not really setting something up for later. Mallory isn't really. Um, but what we do get is this glimpse of, you know, this kind of thing happens a lot really kind of happens all the time. Um, you get these... Yes, Lancelot, Tristram, uh, Lamarack, Palamides are the greatest knights in the land. But they're the greatest knights in the land not only because they are very good when they perform, but because they have staying power, right? Because they stay in the game for a really long time. Um... Uh, even Sir Lamarack, who is going to have the shortest career of the four, right? Even he still already has been in the game for quite a while. Sir Alessander, quite likely, could have been ranked in the top four based on what we're told in this story. But he never really gets to measure up against anybody else. He never makes the leaderboard, right? Um, and that is one of the things that I think 
Maori wants to sort of give us a glimpse of, right? I'm, I'm, I'm put in mind of one of the things that Maori's narrator so often says when he's describing the tournaments, right? When he's trying to, to, to demonstrate, he'll, he'll give us the events of one of the days of the tournament, right? And we'll get a whole bunch of different descriptions of, of, of exchanges and there'll be, you know, one particular night who starts thranging in the press and striking down night after night and all that kind of thing. Um, but then, you know, he'll kind of, what you know, the, narr- the, narr- the narration will move on from him and will tell us about this, you know, the great things that are happening somewhere else on the field, right? Um, when the narrator is trying to tell us who deserves the prize that day, when the crowd is acclaiming who holds the prize, the thing that he keeps saying is he began the day best uh, and he held on for the longest, right? Um, it matters not, it's, what matters is not like who performed the single most impressive feat of arms on that day, right? Um, what matters is whose overall performance, who did the most that day, um, who stayed strong all day long, those are the ones who win the prize that day in the tournament, right? And I think that, again, this is what Sir Alessandro makes me think of, because um, he's awesome, but he's short-lived, right? He doesn't end up having any real impact uh, on Arthur's court or on any of the other Arthurian stories, not because he can't, not because he's not good enough, um, but just by circumstances, and thanks to King Mark, uh, he is, uh, he's not going to live long enough. Um, and so he never really accomplishes anything. And that's in part what it's all about, right? Remember, it's contact sport, right? People die all the time accidentally, right? In a, you know, so there is this sense of, you know, the reputation, the worship that knights are able to win is not necessarily an absolute... Um, expression of like who in theory might have been the great we'll never know really who might have been objectively the greatest right but who stuck around longest who accomplished most who built up their worship most over time Lancelot is important because he has been for I don't know like 50 or 60 years apparently with all the generations that have been going by we have no idea but um for a long, long time now, Lancelot has been the number one knight, and he's still the number one knight. The last point I'd make about this is I think that this extends be This is not just about prowess in arms, right? It, I mean, it is about that. But there's more to it than that, right? Again, it's about who is going to stay the course. Um, knights rise and fall, right? Uh, I, you know, we, we do get those who, if you, there are moments when some of the greater knights could fall away, right? Um, what's going to happen with Sir Palamides? We see he's on the edge lots of times, right? With Sir Lamorak, with Sir Tristram especially. Is he going to get consumed by his envy? Envy is Sir Palamides' problem, right? He envies Sir Tristram, and it's hard to blame him for the level of envy that he has, What's he gonna do about that, right? Is he gonna is he gonna is he gonna is he gonna fall off the wagon, right? Um, is he gonna drive himself right over the moral cliff and into destruction? What's gonna happen with Sir Palamides? He could do that, and if he did, 
he wouldn't be one of the greatest knights anymore, and he would not be, you know, one of the ones in the running to be given the prize uh, for the day in that sense. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, uh, yeah, Rachel, you're right that um, though Maori states frequently that Tristram and Isolde and Lancelot and Guinevere are the greatest lovers, much of what we have seen so far from Tristram and Isolde is actually pretty destructive. Yeah, now, the confounding variable there, Rachel, is of course uh, uh, Mark, right? King Mark. A lot of the destruction is King Mark's fault. Um, if King Mark weren't such a jerk uh, and, and murderer and all that kind of thing, um, then there wouldn't be so much destruction, right? He is very culpable for what happens. And so, of course, compared to King Mark, King Arthur looks awesome, right? Um, you can kind of forget King Arthur's apparent passivity and uh, negligence. That's a strong word, but the shoe kind of seems to fit in places here. Um, again, But he's not King Mark, right? He's worlds away from King Mark. But, Rachel, your point is still very well taken, right? They are the greatest lovers. I, one of the conclusions, Rachel, that I would draw is that Maori is suggesting this love—you know, love itself—is uh, pretty destructive. Often, right? This is not necessarily a good thing at all points. Um, yeah, yeah. And Karita, I do agree with you that um, the whole Alexander the Orphan section is is sort of about King Mark being the worst. Yes, King Mark. It, it's one of the purposes, I think, of this section to show exactly how bad King Mark is. We've already seen him. Remember, we saw him first being a bad knight, being a wicked knight, and a bad knight when he was off in the previous section doing his uh, ill-advised solo knight errantry thing. Um, now we're seeing him being a super bad king, right? Um, and and yeah, Karita, just as I've been suggesting that uh, Tristram and Isolde are really in part there to sort of inform us and help us to, um, to be prepared for the story of Lancelot and Guinevere. King Mark also is the great foil for King Arthur uh, in this way. Anyway, okay. Uh, a few having said those things broadly about the story of Alessandro le Orphelin, let me. Um, uh, look at a few particular passages which I thought was interesting. The first is the defeat of the Saracen Armada. So it befell on a time that miscreants Saracens landed in the country of Cornwall soon after the Sassoins were departed. And when the good prince Sir Bodwin was war of them where they were landed, then at the landing he raised the people privily and hastily. And or it were die, he let put wildfire in three of his own shippers. And suddenly he pulled up the sail, and with the wind he marred those shippers to be driven among the navy of the Saracens. And to mock a short tale, though three shippers set on fire all of the shippers, that none were savoured. And at the point of the die, the good Prince Baudwin, with all his fellowship, set on the miscreants with shouters and cries, and slew the number of forty thousand, and left none on life. When King Mark wist this, he was wonderly wroth that his brother should win such worship and honour. And because this prince was better loved than he in all that country, and also this prince Baudwin loved well Sir Tristram, and therefore he thought to slay him. Yeah, okay. So, 
I mentioned that envy is the big temptation of Sir Palamides, right? Envy is the stumbling block that we see Sir Palamides falling down on many, many times, right? Um, King Mark is like the embodiment of envy. Envy is one of the seven deadly sins. Envy is a big deal. Um, envy is what we... Um, The seven deadly sins were categorized. Um, There's one point, uh, there's a famous verse uh, in the epistles in the the New Testament um, that characterizes sort of the three enemies of man being the world, the flesh, and the devil. Uh, The seven deadly sins were subcategorized on this basis. Um, I always have loved this subcategorization, actually. Uh, The sins of the flesh, of course, are lust and gluttony and sloth. The sins of uh, the sin of the world is covetousness, greed. Um, the sins of the devil are wrath and envy and especially pride. Um, envy is one of the sins of the devil. And what uh, and the essence of envy is essentially the kind of it leads to a sort of reversal of like the entire fundamental moral code, right? When when you feel bad when other when good things are happening to other people, and when you feel good when bad things are happening to other people, um, that is um, that that is that is the, the that is the essence and the heart of envy, right? King Mark's reaction is a classic and really extreme example of envy, right? His brother, and yes, Carita, this is his brother, right, Sir Baldwin, um, and Carita, you may be right that for the sake of Cornwall, the wrong brother is king here, right? Uh, so that, there, was, there, was, there was some mismanagement there, as Elizabeth Bennet might say. Um, but anyway, um, except in this case, one brother has all of the, uh, all of the good and all of the appearance of it. Um, uh, but anyway, um, when King Mark's brother Prince Baldwin heroically drives off um, heroically drives off the enemy um, and saves the day. Mark is furious that this happened, right? He is consumed with hatred for his brother, is wonderly wroth that his brother should win such worship and honor. That's all that he cares about, right? He cannot be grateful. He cannot be happy. Even that his own kingdom was saved, that his own throne has been secured by his brother's actions, he is the opposite of grateful. He is furious about that. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, David, yeah, a, a rather large Saracen invasion force just happened to land on the Cornish coast. Yeah, yeah, this kind of thing happens all the time. Remember this happened to the, the Eleven Kings way back at the beginning of Arthur's reign? Remember they they went home and found thirty thousand Saracens uh, attacking their castles. It happens, you know. Um, yeah, great question, Mighty Felix, and I agree with Harnuth. Um, it does make it sound like wildfire is a uh, a, a specific thing, right? Um, uh, not just. 
it's not just an adjective applied to fire, like fire that's really, uh, you know, really blazing, right? Now, I, it sounds like a, a particular kind of fire. I don't think it's... It might be, or sort of to be, uh, uh, to be evoking Greek fire. Greek fire was kind of famously unknown to anybody but the Byzantines, right? So uh, that was a carefully and successfully guarded secret, by and large. Um, so uh, I don't know that that's exactly... But that seems to be the kind of thing that um, uh, that he has in mind, certainly. I, I do definitely think... Um, he let put wildfire in three of his own ships. Um, notice it's definitely different from set on fire all the ships, right? Um, it doesn't put wildfire in the other ships. Again, it's not just an adjective. I, I do think that that's definitely a a, uh, a specific thing there. Um, we're going to get wildfire later on. One of the uh, one of the, someone is going to use wildfire to burn down the castle that Morgan Le Fay is holding uh, Sir Alexander in, right? Um, and again, there's that same thing. They're going to put wildfire um, in the at many points in the castle, and thus the whole thing is going to burn down. So yes, I do very definitely get the impression that Maori is is referring to a a particular phenomenon there. Um, yes, yes. Um, uh, yes, Sakai, Tyrion Lannister would be proud. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Um, okay. The thing that I would emphasize here, again, in this instance, the envy of King Mark and the murderous rage that he is driven into by his envy. This is almost like a textbook example of envy. Like, it's hard to imagine, really, a more extreme example of envy than this. He has a lot of reasons to be, to think positive thoughts, right? To express positive feelings, to be grateful to his, to, for, for this, right? Um, it is his own brother, right? So there's like the natural affection that uh, should be part of that as well. Um, uh, there's the 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 uh, relationship between a king and a liege. Like this is what he's supposed to do, right? This is what he's supposed. He's being a good liege, uh, a good liege man to his king here and helping to protect the kingdom. Um, the fact that you know Mark's own life and crown have personally been saved. I mean, it's 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 almost every thing heaped on there. He has like, nothing would have been easier in theory than for him to be grateful, at least a little bit grateful to Prince Bodwin. And instead he has this diametrically opposed uh, reaction. Um, He is, King Mark is eaten up with envy here. He's somebody who acts like this is scarcely human anymore. And in fact, you may remember that's exactly the kind of language that Boethius used when he talked about uh, people who give in to sins like this, and he compared them to different animals, right? Um, like they, they, they just they lose their humanity entirely when they get themselves into this position. Um, we are seeing King Mark really, really devolving here. Um, 
And again, I think that this establishes an important this this is a this is a warning, you know, uh, this should be a warning to us all, as Mary might say. Right. Um, certainly a warning to people like Sir Palamides. I mean, goodness there, but for the grace of God, and that's going to be important later, um, goes Palamides. Right. Um, but more than that, what about Arthur? Right. Notice the lack of envy that Arthur shows towards Lancelot. He could. Remember the conversation we had after the uh, story of Sir Lacote Maltile, when we saw Lancelot out there giving away lands and setting up lords and everything like that? Arthur could resent that. Arthur could resent the fact that it's Lancelot that everyone's afraid of and not him, right? Um, a feeling of rivalry towards even those that are serving you well, that can happen, right? Um, even if you don't go full King Mark, uh, nevertheless, he really sort of shows how this um, how this works. Um, and um, yeah, again, King Mark to Sir Tristram is um, uh, is 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 again clearly that foil there. But again, here with Prince Baldwin, one of the things that we get from the it's not about the love, right? You know, um, Rachel, as you were um, pointing out before, the love of Tristram and Isolde is pretty destructive, which is true. But it's the envy of Mark that is most destructive at all. And one of the points that we get here, his envy goes well beyond merely sexual rivalry, right? Or or uh, sexual jealousy, the desire to, you know, conserve his wife to himself, um, there is no, you know, there's no romantic or sexual angle with Prince Baldwin here. Um, David, it is an interesting question of why we, why isn't this a Sir Tristram story, right? Why is this a Sir Sadoc story, right? About he is the one who spares young Alessander's life and does not drown the baby, um, uh, defies his his uh, king and refuses to drown the baby. Um, why is it not Sir Tristram? Again, I think the story of Alessander, Carita, um, as you said before, one of the clear messages of this story is, let's show you exactly how bad King Mark is, right? Um, and so we get this whole story, which is completely apart. It has nothing to do with Tristram and Isolde, right? This is just like what King Mark does on his off days, right? This is how he spends his free time, um, just to show you uh, how that works. And again, just as Tristram and Isolde are here to sort of show us what, how lovers operate and the kinds of difficulties that lovers create and the kind of destructiveness, Rachel, as you suggested, it, it can lead to if it goes wrong, right? Uh, or, you know, situations go run amok. Um, just as we get that with Tristan and Isolde, with King Mark, we get that, and here's what happens if a king goes off the rails, right? And again, King Mark completely off the rails here. Um, Michelle, I totally agree with you that we rarely get any sense that Mark cares about Isolde, right? Remember, he only married her in the first place. Um, it seemed like to tick Tristram off. Uh, so yeah, yeah, no, I don't think he cares much about his own either. Um, just his own honor, which of course is nil, 
This is after Sir Sadoc has been caught, so King Mark has discovered that Alessander still lives, right? and in fact has now grown up and been knighted, which is awkward for him. Um, and therewithal, King Mark took a sword in his hand and socked Sir Sadoc from chamber to chamber to slay him. When Sir Sadoc saw King Mark come with his sword in his hand, Sir, he sighed, beware, Mark, and come not to knock me. For wit thou well that I savid Alessander his life, of which I never repent me. For thou falsely and cowardly slew his father, Prince Bodwin, traitorly for his good deeds. Wherefore, I pray Almichty Jesu, send Alessander meekt and power to be revenged upon thee. And now beware, King Mark, of young Alessander, for he is mad a knicht. Alas, sighed King Mark, that ever I should hear a traitor say so afore me. And therewith four knictes of King Mark drew their swerders to slay Sir Sadoc, but anon King Mark his knictes were slain afore him, and Sir Sadoc passed forth into his chamber, and took his harness and his horse, and rode on his way. For there was neither Sir Tristram, Sir Dinas, neither Sir Fergus, that walled Sir Sadoc any evil will. Sir Sadoc can waltz out of the court because the only uh, people who oppose him are the, those knights of Cornwall that have such a low reputation uh, in Arthur's court, and Sir Sadoc takes them out one on four, right? And then he goes back to his bedroom where he apparently keeps his horse. <laughs> I was a little surprised there, right? Pass it into his chamber and took his harness and his horse and rode on his way. I don't think it actually means that his, you know, saddle and is his horse are kept in his bedroom. But it kind of sounds like that, which kind of made me giggle in an immature way when I was reading it. But um, uh, anyway, um, <laughs> Tarlonio, you're right. In King Mark's court, keeping your getaway horse uh, close, it really is not a bad idea. I, I agree. Um, and um, uh yeah, now, Carita, you are right to point out that King Mark is only taking part in a long, proud tradition of kings trying to kill babies. Um, notice how there again, Carita, as you are indirectly pointing out, he is once more being a foil for King Arthur, right? King Arthur tried to kill Mordred when Mordred was a baby and, you know, succeeded in killing a bunch of other babies. Um, the difference, of course, is that it wasn't just vengeance for his own evil deeds that he was trying to avoid, right? Alessander, notice he, he's been calling Alessander a traitor um, since he was an infant, right? Uh, he, he was a traitor baby before, um, and, uh, uh, and so to let him go was treason. But, um, and so with Sir Mordred, it was kind of the same thing, but again, this is not, uh, you know, uh, uh, Arthur wasn't exactly doing a cover-up, but, but again, Carita, I do agree with you. The parallels are uncomfortable. And again, I think one of the consequences of this is to remember that, yes, Arthur is very different from King Mark, but, you know, they're parallel, right? It's not a completely different world. He's not, a, it's not, he's not irrelevant to King Arthur, certainly. Um, uh, but here's the other thing. Notice what Sadok doesn't do, or anybody doesn't do. King Mark is evil, 
right? He's off the tracks. I mean, he is completely... Uh, and everybody knows it. Everybody can see it. Everybody knows he's going to betray Tristram, right? Everybody knows this, except Arthur, apparently. Well, Arthur finally tumbles to it, too. Even he. Um, kill Mark, Morgan! Exactly! Um, there's no mutiny, David. Exactly. I, Sir Sadok is defying King Mark to his face. He is throwing, you know, at, at, Mark is astonished at what he's hearing, that someone dares to say this to his face. Um, he is accusing him of being a traitor. You, you, you have killed him traitorly for his good deeds. Falsely, cowardly, traitorly. Those are the three adverbs that um, Sir Sadok applies to the slaying of Sir Alessandro's father, um, uh, Prince Baldwin, King Mark's own brother, right? So King Mark committed fratricide, by the way, right? I mean, again, that's just on the side, right? Compared, he doesn't even he doesn't even mention that element of the crime. Um, but notice what Sir Sadok doesn't do, won't do, is actually attack Mark, right? He doesn't say, "You are a traitor. You do not deserve to be king anymore." Um, I'm going to take you down right here and now. And I'm not saying that he has to become a murderer himself. He could just do the keep thee thing, right? And, you know, keep thee, King Mark. I, I appeal you of treason, and I am going to, like, I, you know, I, I challenge you to prove yourself with your body right now. I'm coming after you, and I'm going to take you down. Um, he doesn't do it, right? He doesn't even, that doesn't seem to be on the table, Right. King Mark gets away with all these things. Nobody can take him down because for anybody else to do that would be, I mean, Sir Sadok would, it would be wrong for him to attack his Lord. He doesn't do it. He won't do it with swords. Um, yeah. Killing his own King would be, uh, uh, a traitorly act. Right. Um, so he won't do it. So, kind of gets you thinking, doesn't it? What are the options? I mean, when you've got a king as bad as Mark, not, you know, Tristram can't just kill him and take his throne, or else, you know, he'd be doing the wrong thing, too. Um, so, gosh, what recourse is there? What could possibly happen? Who, oh, who would possibly have the authority to come in and take King Mark off his throne as he so richly deserves? The answer, of course, is King Arthur. And this is this moment is the one where I was thinking most keenly, like, where the heck is King Arthur? Right. Where is King Arthur? What possible excuse is there for his inaction here. Remember, he has already seen, he made King Mark swear an oath that he would cease plotting against Sir Tristram's life, right? Which he now has evidence based on, apparently, on King Mark's own letters to him. He has evidence, and Tristram's letters, he has evidence that King Mark has disobeyed him, right? Has broken his vow. And then, of course, there's this kind of going on. Fratricide, uh, you know, of like the, you know, the noble hero of the country and everything. Um, King Arthur has 
the legal right, even the legal obligation um, to come in and straighten things out here. Right. Um, And it doesn't happen. It never happens. No matter how many people King Mark feloniously slays. Right. Or has killed. And I cannot help but think King Mark, therefore, grows into not just a dubious parallel, a cautionary tale for King Arthur, but an actual indictment of King Arthur himself. I just have a hard time not reading that. I, I It's hard because we get no direct evidence of this. Nobody says this. Not one single character in the story has ever opened their mouth and said, where is King Arthur? Why doesn't Arthur do something? Right. How is, you know, uh, will no one rid rid us, you know, of this uh, of this terrible king? Um, Nobody says that. So we don't have the direct evidence that would really make me happier. Right. That that uh, uh, that this is really the the the, you know, a correct reading of the text. But. I still, despite the absence of any such direct evidence, have a really hard time not thinking it. All right. Look at this. Sir Sadduck goes off and um, uh, he, King Mark, sends a false knight chasing after him to try to kill him. Right. No good. But within short space, Sir Sadduck met with that false knight and slew him. Than was King Mark wood wroth out of measure. Then he sent unto Queen Morgan le Fay and to the Queen of North Gallus, prying them in his letters that they two sorcerers would set all the country environ with ladies that were enchanters, and by such that were dangerous knictis, as Sir Malagreen and Sir Brunus sounds pite, that by no mean Alessander le Orphelin should never escape, but other he shall be taken or slain. And all this ordinance, Mad King Mark to destroy Sir Alessander. So now we have like, you know, the axis forming, right? You know, we have this positive alliance between King Mark and Morgan Le Fay and the Queen of North Gallus, who has been like one of the minor sorcerer's figures. Remember, she was one of the four, um, the four queens who captures Lancelot when he was taking a nap under the tree at that point, right? Um, <laughs> Exactly, David. I was thinking the same thing, right? Uh, Clearly, we've got a, you know, this is now like, it's like the senior capstone project at the Nigromancy School, right? It's time for some field work, girls. Uh, Go out in the countryside and uh, uh, lie in wait for Alessandre Le Orphelin. Yeah, Morgan, Bruce Sans Pitté is is a great wicked character, right? And he's uh, one of the, I, I definitely the longest has the longest career, right? I mean, too often, um, too often these, uh, dangerous knights, right? Those very powerful, but deviant knights, um, like Sir Malagrin, who, uh, uh, whom, uh, Alessandro Le Orphelin does in fact destroy, um, too often they're one-shot wonders, right? You know, we, we learn about their wicked and evil careers, 
but they're just sort of set up to have Sir Lancelot come along and take them down, right? Sir Bruce Sans Pitté, he's around for a long time, right? He is he is by far the most successful dangerous knight uh, in all of Arthurian history. Better even than Sir Garland the Invisible Knight, um, who had a number of hit-and-run successes, right? But Sir Bruce Sans Pitté is even better. Um, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, isn't it amazing, David, that he, he hasn't been killed yet? But yeah, like, what he's really good at is his super-fast horses, right? And, and, and the swiftness with which he runs away. If ever things are not going his way, he gets on his super-fast horses and he is out of there, right? Which, of course, is another shame to him, right? Almost as much shame to him as the, you know, wicked deed that he's doing in the first place. He acts first, you know, felonsly, and then he acts unlightly, right? Cowardly. Um, but, of course, if you're Sir Bruce Sans Pitté, you don't care, because it means you get to, to, to live another day uh, to perform other uh, wicked acts. It's all good, right? Um, let's see, does Bruce ever die? I think he is going to get killed. I'm forgetting. I'm forgetting. It's been so long since I've... Especially this section of the text. It's been a long time since I've uh, gone through. It's one of the reasons I'm really enjoying this, because I haven't worked my way carefully through this central section of the book in a long time. Back when I used to teach Arthurian Lit, um, I, uh, uh, I, I regretfully always had to skip this section because I was trying to do a whole bunch of Arthurian works in the semester, of which Maori was only one. Um, but... Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jennifer says, once you stop caring about shame, you become really dangerous, right? Yeah, and that certainly is uh, uh, is is Sir Bruce. Um, yeah, good. Okay, so um, again, the main um, the main thing that I would uh, the main thing that I would point out, the main thing that I would emphasize here is notice the we have seen um, you know wicked people individually acting wickedly, right? We've seen the occasional rogue knight who sets up his castle where he captures uh, knights and puts them to wicked shame uh, and all that kind of thing, right? You know, this is a, this is a known phenomenon uh, in, uh, uh, in the Arthurian world. Um, and we've seen many, many examples of this kind of thing. But, you know, uh, it's... It's getting different now. This is the first sense of this kind of network that we've gotten, right? Um, a network that King Mark could draw upon and a network that um, Morgan Le Fay and the Queen of North Gallus are in charge of in some way. Karita, I'm not sure how much he's paying the queens or what their motivation is to work along with them, but... Uh, yeah, and how do they know each other? Yeah, do, like, are they, is there a club? Right? Do they have a do they do they have a do they have a secret handshake? I don't know. Um, but again, as I've been saying about the lines being drawn more and more clearly, right? We get this sense. It's not just that there are still perils in the world, like out in the perilous forest, you might find these perilous knights or giants or questing beasts or something. Um, not saying the questing beast is necessarily evil, but it's perilous, right? Um, these things are not just perilous. There are there are evil people out there who are determinedly evil, like Mark, like Sir Bruce, like Morgan Le Fay, um, and they're working together, right? They're in cahoots, 
um, and look at the action that they're taking specifically, right? Um, they are setting all the country environ with ladies that were enchanters, right? Um, place enchanters all over the place, right? There's like laying traps for him. Uh, let's uh, ratchet up the peril in the part of the country that we know Alessandro Le Orphelin is. Um, these are not just random adventures, right? Um, the deck is being stacked against him by the contrivance and cooperation of the evil alliance here. Um, yeah, yeah. Karita, I have a lot of questions, too. There are so many... Oh, man, like... Isn't it just tempting to start spending a lot of time writing Mallory fan fiction? There are so many untold stories that, like, you want to tell, right? Um, uh, man, so many, like, other versions of this story or other points of view on these stories or things that are going on that we never really hear about um, that I want to hear about, you know? I mean, seriously. Um, that would be really good. Anyway... Uh, Morgan Le Fay still up to her old tricks. Remember, Alessandro was grievously wounded in the battle with uh, Sir What's His Name, the the this one Malagrin, um, and he was almost killed, but not quite killed. And Morgan Le Fay takes him in, and she's like got one of the magic ointments, you know, that heals you almost completely. But she makes him promise um, she makes him promise not to uh, not to leave right he has to stay in the castle with her for a year and a day um, and she wants to be his lover right so but there's this damsel fortunately there's this damsel who never gets a name but who is my favorite character in the whole Sir Alessandro story uh, this damsel who is some way associated with Morgan Le Fay but who is not towing the party line right Sir Knecht, sighed the damsel, and ye wold be merry, I could tell you good tidings. Well, it were me, sighed Sir Alexander, and I meeked here of good tidings, for now I stand as a prisoner, be me promise. Sir, she sighed, wit you well that ye be a prisoner, and worse than ye ween, for my lady, my cousin, Queen Morgan, keepeth you here for none other intent, but for to do her pleasure, one hit liketh her. Yet another attempted reverse rape, right? Once again, we have a knight who is being held captive uh, uh, and uh, uh, to the would-be sexual whimsy of one of these predatory women. Once again, this theme <laughs> raises its head, right? Ah, Jesu, defend me, sighed Sir Alessander, from such pleasure, for I had laver cut away my hangers than I will do her any such pleasure. I have no comment. As Jesu me help, sighed the damsel, and ye would love me and be ruled by me, I shall make your deliverance with your worship. Tell me now by what mean and ye shall have my love. Fire knicked, sighed she, this castle oct of reek to be mine. And I have an uncle, the which is a mighty earl, and he is earl of the pass, and of all folkes he hateth most Morgan Le Fay, and I shall send unto him and pry him for my sake to destroy this castle for the evil customs that been used therein, 
and than will he come and set fire on every part with wildfire. There's our wildfire again. And so great I get you, and so, sorry, and so shall I get you at a privy postern, and there ye shall have your horse and your harness. Okay. Um, so she has a devious plan, right? You can stay here, but I'm going to set you free, right? We'll set you free by burning the castle down around you. And of course he stays. So he goes out into the garden, right? And the castle burns down and then he just stays there, right? But I shall stay on this spot where the castle used to be for a year and a day. So no longer is he Queen Morgan's prisoner and there's a much lower chance that he is going to be seduced slash raped by the predatory Queen Morgan I guess, in the open fields near the wreckage of the castle than there was in the castle. So having had the castle burned down, he's now free of her, I guess. Um, yeah. Carita, I agree. So many of these knights would be useless without damsels. How many of these stories have the damsels been the real hero of? Remember Leonette, right, in Sir Gareth's story? Um, again, you know, I... Um, So, Karita, you know one of the things that I have been coming to um, confront? This reading of Maori has helped me figure out something that has bothered me for a while. I've never been able to articulate exactly... I have always been tremendously disappointed by the Mists of Avalon. There are a lot of things that I just don't like about it that I wouldn't like under any circumstances. But it's not just that I don't like it. Um, I've always been disappointed. Disappointed almost to the point of feeling offended by the mists of Avalon. But I couldn't really ever quite put my finger on, like, what nettled me so much about the mists of Avalon. And I figured it out. Um... What bothers me about The Mists of Avalon is that it is almost the book that I really want to read, right? Uh, that Sir Thomas Mallory gives you the very clear sense, and we've talked about this a little bit before, that there is this huge women's sub, you know, like alternate culture there, right? This entire story could be told from the point of view of the damsels, right? We see them interacting. We see them connecting. We know so many stories in which this random damsel shows up and is pivotal, and the clueless knights have no idea who she is, why she's doing this, what her uh, larger story is. This is going to be true through the very end of the story. We're going to continue to get this glimpse of there is this whole female world which lies behind. There is this entire other story which Maori like, seems to be aware of, but doesn't tell, right? And that's the story I want to read. I think I've wanted to read that story for a really long time. And when I first sort of found out about the Mist of Avalon, that's what I was hoping for. I was hoping to get that story. And it's like kind of that story or sort of almost that story. But it's to me so disappointing because it's not the story. It's not what I wanted. Um, it doesn't really. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't. It. uh it totally retells it too much. Like I get, I, 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 this, I, I want, I want, I, I don't want that story. I want this story. I want this, but I want this story told from the point of view of the women. I want to know what's going on behind the scenes. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. 
Um, uh, interesting. Morgan says, uh, Morgan, I was hoping you'd be able to help me with this. Uh, Morgan says that Vera Chapman's novels are closer to that. Okay. All right. Hang on a second. I don't know those. I said, give me a moment here. I got to <laughs> let me pause class to, to look up this book recommendation because this is important. This is important. Oh, man. Um, uh, okay. Um, all right. I will. Um, I will. I, I will look. I'm making a note here. Ah, the King's Damsel. Is that is that one of them, Morgan? Okay. Ah, the King's Damsel. Oh man, it's really short. That's terrible. Okay. Ah, it's about Lynette. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, cool. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Okay. All right. All right. Totally on my list, Morgan. Thank you for that. Um. Okay. Anyway. Uh, this, so this damsel is great. Now, one of the things that I want to point out here, Sir Alessander's reaction is fairly extreme, right? Um, remember when Lancelot was similarly propositioned by Morgan Le Fay herself? In fact, remember, he was given the choice of the four sorcerous queens. Um, and um, uh, uh, anyhow, um, I... His reaction, I would rather castrate myself than do her any such pleasure. That's not how, um, that's not how Lancelot talked. There's an edge here, which is already, which is shifting a bit. Um, remember when I was saying... I don't really understand. <laughs> I don't really understand why sex is important in this story. I don't really understand the significance of sex in Maori. Um, I still don't. Th- this this passage, on the one hand, is theoretically data that which could help me to understand that. In the end, I feel like it is reminder. Um, uh, I feel like it is it is a reminder that I just don't understand uh what the problem is here. Um Yeah, I just I don't get it. I'm not sure that I understand at all. And that's just difficult. Um He would rather castrate himself then do her any such pleasure. The pleasure of Jesus defend me from such pleasure. I said that Lancelot didn't respond quite this way. It's not just that it's more extreme. We've heard people say, Jesus defend me before. Does Alessander mean it? That is, is he asking Jesus' help? Is there a legitimately religious turn to Alessander's declaration here? 
his pledge that he would rather castrate himself than be the victim of pleasure such as that. Um, that's, um, that's, um, that's St. Jerome, you know? I mean, that's straight up, uh, St. Jerome who, uh, uh, according to tradition, did in fact castrate himself. Um, those of you who know the New Testament, you remember that bit where Jesus says, uh, if your eye offend you, pluck it out. It is better to enter into life blind, you know, blind than, uh, than to, uh, to go to destruction. If your right hand offends you, cut it off, right? Um, there were many medieval moralists who then kind of took the next step and were like, so, thinking along those lines, if you are having a problem with sexual temptation, do the math, right? That was, I'm not saying that was mainstream. I'm not saying that was popular. Uh, uh, Self-castration was never popular. But that was a known line of thinking, which more extreme moralists did sort of push. And, um, uh, so Alessander's quite striking, uh, declaration that he would prefer to castrate himself than to, again, notice how his reference to his own castration is flanked by references not to sex, not to, but to pleasure specifically, right? Um, he would choose castration over pleasure in that context, right? With Queen Morgan under pressure in this, um, in this, uh, in this thing. Um, uh, yes, Sarah St. Jerome had big problems with women. You're right. There are, there are a few problems with women that St. Jerome didn't have. Uh, yeah. Uh, he had issues. Um, but anyway, why do I bring this up? This is going to be important later. Um, we are going to get an increasing focus on the importance of virginity and of sexual virtue, um, which we had kind of prefigured gently in Lancelot's, uh, heterodox or at least unorthodox sexual creed, uh, or at least un, you know, unconventional, I should say, perhaps, sexual creed. Um, I get, this is, there's something, there's something different here. Sir Alessander is not the first knight to, uh, for, to have, to be almost reverse raped by a sorceress, right? That's practically an institution at this point. Um, his reaction is different. Things are changing, right? Things are drifting. Um, and I forget, Deborah, was it, was it, was it you who was quoting, uh, that hideous strength earlier on? And yeah, I mean, I'm totally thinking of that too. Uh, if you like Deborah, you can think about a lot of this part of the text as we're reading this to be a sort of a exp explanation and commentary on that line from that hideous strength as I think, uh, I think that C.S. Lewis is absolutely right in his reading of Mallory there. I think it's as, you know, C.S. Lewis is such a good reader. Um, 
I disagree with him sometimes, but pretty rarely actually uh, in his uh, in his reading of medieval works. But anyway, um, uh, so yeah. Ye shall have my love. Another brief thing I want to touch on there. Um, ye shall have my love. What does he mean by that? What kind of pleasance are they doing to each other? Um, oh yeah, uh, sorry, uh, Devra David wasn't here before when you mentioned that. Uh, could you could you uh, give the reference for that? By the way, we also speaking of that hideous strength, that line uh, here the. Um, Sorceress is setting all the country environ with ladies that were enchanters is a line that's quoted by uh, Professor Dimble, as I recall, uh, in that hideous strength. Like he actually quotes that line um, in the book. Um, but yeah, Deborah, could you uh, could you remind us like what which, which bit of uh, um, it's near the end, right? When they're talking about, I think it's near the end. Um, uh, Yes, Ransom in Speaking to Merlin talks about good getting better and worse getting worse. Yeah, sharp, getting sharper. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, yep. Okay, anyway. All right, let's move on. Same damsel. Same damsel. So, Sir Alexander finds his lady love, right? Uh, Alexander, whose lady love is named Alice, right? Uh Alice, the beautiful pilgrim, and because she's the daughter of the pilgrim dude, the pilgrim knight. And um, Alessandra is doing this thing. <laughs> where, okay. So when they were departed, Sir Alessandra beheld his lady Alice on horseback as she stood in her pavilion. And then was he so enamored upon her that he wist not whether he were on horseback or on foot. Reek so come the false knight Sir Mordred, and saw Sir Alessander was so affoned upon his laddie, and therewithal he took his horse by the bridle, and laid him here and there, and had cast to have laid him out of that place to have shamed him. Let me confess, I don't really understand what's happening here. So, Alessander is contemplating his lady, and he is so overwhelmed with her beauty that he is unaware of his surroundings. Mordred comes in at this point, sees him in this peculiar psychological state, and decides that he, Mordred, is going to take advantage of the opportunity to shame Sir Alessander. Right? So he leads him away by the horse here and there, and he's trying to lead him away so that I don't know what he's going to do to him. He's going to shame him somehow. Right, like I don't know what he's going to tie him to a tree or, or something. Um, uh, yeah, Karita, you're right. I mean, this is how you can tell when someone is really in love, right? I mean, if somebody says that he loves you and but he still is aware of whether or not he's on foot or on horseback, you have to question, you know, how how sincere really are his are his feelings. Um, uh, Yeah. Oh, interesting, Michelle. I hadn't thought of that, but maybe he's still in the place where he promised he would stay. Right? He's still in the on the uh, standing in the burned wreckage of the castle that he promised Morgan Le Fay he would remain in. So if he's being led away, then he would be shamed because he would have left it. Right? Yeah, that's a good. Uh, that's that. That seems likely, actually. Um, 
So Juan the damsel that help him out of that castle, saw how shamefully he was lad, anon she let arm her and set a shield upon her shoulder. Unprecedented. We have never had a woman in arms yet in all of Maori until this moment. And therewith she amounted upon his horse, and got a knocked sword in her hand, and she thrust unto Alessander with all her meeked, and she gaff him such a buffet that him thought that fire flew out of his iron. And when Sir Alessander felt that stroke, he looked about him, and drew his sword, and when she saw that, she fled. And so did Sir Mordred into the forest, and the damsel fled into the pavilion. And so Juan Sir Alessander understood himself how the false Kneeked would have shamed him had not the damsel been. Than was he wroth with himself that Sir Mordred had escaped his hondas. But than Sir Alessander and his laddie Alice had good gam at the damsel, how sadly she smote him upon the helm. Um, yeah, this, uh, you're right, Karina, this girl doesn't mess around. Um, so the this is in, these are important life lessons, right? If you ever you find yourself in this position where you're so overwhelmed with love for someone that you don't know whether you're on foot or on horseback, the cure is a nice concussion, right? Uh, uh, to, so all you have to do if you see somebody else in this position, uh, give them a sharp buffet uh, so that they feel like fire is flowing out of their eyes, and then they'll be fine. So it's good to know uh, these little tricks. Um, that she arms herself, though, and goes on horseback. It's, this is still um, uh, remarkable. Um, and um, and it's sad that she doesn't end up being with Alessander, right? He's marrying this other girl. Uh, but anyway, whatever. Look at Mordred here, right? Notice what Mordred has become. Remember Mordred in the story of Sir Lakot Maltile? Sir Lakot Maltile met with Mordred at that point, right? Uh, and remember Mordred went along with him and kind of showed him the ropes. Remember it was Mordred who was explaining, like, you know, you're the reason a bunch of guys are coming by and knocking you off your horse and refusing to fight on foot is that they're wily veterans and you're a rookie. Um, you know, they know they're better jousters than you because jousting kind of takes practice. But since you're younger than they are and they're not getting any, you know, they're not getting any younger and, and uh, you know, you're you're uh, uh, young and good breathed, you might be able to take them on foot and they're too wily for that. So they won't fight. Remember, that was Mordred who explained that to him and who was Sir Lakote Maltile's companion for a while until you remember Lancelot shows up and then Mordred excuses himself and leaves. He will not ride in companionship with 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 uh, uh, with Lancelot, so already we see, you know, sort of the separation of the good and uh, the good and the bad, the good and the evil. But Mordred was not just like wandering around causing trouble, right? I mean, he like was an ally to Sir Lacote Maltile. Everything was fine. He didn't want to hang out with Lancelot, and Lancelot didn't want to hang out with him. But it was okay, right? Then we got later on, right? We. Uh, what we just looked at earlier today when Mordred and Agravain met Sir Dinadin, right, and both got unhorsed by him and were upset by it and are going to conspire to come and murder him later on. Here we have Mordred showing up as he's the false knight Sir Mordred. He's just false now. And he shows up only in order to um, only in order to uh, 
um, cause trouble in order to do bad things to people in order to bring his, his goal is to bring shame to Sir Alessandro. He's not even trying to murder him, right? He's just wanting to bring shame. It's what he does. And as soon as his opportunity to bring shame, as soon as he gets rumbled, he's out. Right. Um, yeah, he's been reduced to popping out of bushes uh, and making people look dumb. Yeah. Carita, I agree. Yeah. He's, he does no, he no longer seems to have any function than to, uh, just be a bad guy here. Um, Jennifer, I agree. If only uh, this damsel had given Mordred a good whack instead, many things might have been different, right? Sakaya, I agree. Yeah, uh, Alessander and Alice is very uh, confusing. Karita agrees. She uh, she thinks that um, uh, their, their names are too similar. This uh, ce- celebrity marriage is never going to work out. But here's the end of the story. Once again, like the story of Sir Lakot Maltau, Maori seems to, I don't know, is he, does he bore of it? I, you know, does he just tire of it and get bored? I don't really know. Uh, but where we get this ragged ending of the story, right? And at the 12 months end, he departed with his lady, La Belle Pilaron. And the damsel, that is the, uh, you know, the, the castle burning, uh, 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 Helmet buffeting damsel, walled never from him, and so they went unto their country of Benoy and lived there in great joy. All three of them, apparently. But as the book telleth, King Mark walled never stint till he had slain him by treason, and by Alice, he gate not King Mark. I assume pronouns. Remember, we're often pronoun challenged uh, or antecedent challenged, perhaps I should say. Um, it is not King Mark getting a child by Alice. I'm assuming it's, in fact, Alessander. And by Alice, he gate a child that heeked Belangerus Labeus. And by good fortune, he come to the court, he that is Belangerus, I believe, come to the court of King Arthur and prayed a good knicht. And he revenged his father's death, for this false king Mark slew both Sir Tristram and Sir Alessander falsely and felonsly. So finally somebody is going to do in King Mark. And who's it going to be? The grandson of good Prince Bodwin, who was killed, you know, stabbed to death by King Mark at the beginning of this story. Um, like Sir Lacote Maltile, avenging his father turns out to be not the highest thing on the priority list of Alessander L'Orphelin, despite the fears of King Mark. Um, uh, but King Mark is uh, is going to be um, finally taken care of by the grandson. And it happened so that Sir Alessander had never grasped ne fortune to come to King Arthur's court, for and he had come to Sir Launcelot, all Knictis side that knew him that he was one of the strongest Knictis that was in King Arthur's dice, and great dole was mad for him. Um, again, like wasted opportunity, right? That got unfortunately King uh, Sir Alessander is a flash in the pan, right? And he's never going to meet Sir Lancelot, who would have loved him. Um, and also the implication, I think, there he never got to measure himself against Sir Lancelot, right? Maybe this, maybe he could have beaten Sir Lancelot. He's got a great record. He's way better than Sir Lacote Maltile, right? He's much more like Sir Gareth. Um, but anyway, certainly. 
he could have been a contender, Sir Alessander, but he's not a contender. And there's much, there's great dole made, and his son's going to eventually avenge him. The end. <laughs> All right. Started late, so I'll carry on for a little bit here going into the Tournament of Sir Luz. Only a few, just uh, just a, a few uh, uh, sort of scattered things I wanted to point out about the tournament at Sir Luz. Um, mostly about Sir Dinadin being awesome. Juan Sir Galahalt understood their quarrel. He bade them go to the dinner. So this is Sir Palamides and Sir Arcad, uh, who are um, fighting over a damsel. Sir Palamides is defending the damsel. Um, as soon as ye have dined, look that either Kniecht be ready in the field. By the way, just my context here, this is just an interesting passage, I think, to kind of show us what a day in the life of a tournament was like. The description of the tournament, right? But then, then we break for dinner, right? And then we're going to have a duel to the death after dinner, right? Uh, leading to one of my favorite transitions in all of Maori. So while they had dined, they were armed both and took their horses. And the queen and the prince and Sir Launcelot were set to behold them. And so they let rend their horses, and there Sir Palamides and Sir Arcad met, and he bar Sir Arcad on his spear end over the horse tile. And than Sir Palamides aleked and drew his sword, but Sir Arcad meek not arise. And there Sir Palamides rasped off his helm and smote off his head. Than the Hout Prince and Queen Guinevere went to supper. <laughs> I just love that. Notice there are two or three consecutive decapitations followed immediately by a celebratory supper in this tournament alone. That transition, it's not, it's funny the first time. It gets even funnier to me every time we get it, right? Um, somebody gets their head swapped off and then we go eat dinner. It's, yeah, it's, it, it, it just, it never gets old. Than King Bagdemaga sent away his son Meliagounce, because Sir Launcelot should not meet with him, for he hotted Sir Launcelot, and that canoe he not. Now, hang on, we'll come back to Sir Meliagounce in a second. Um, Sir Palamides is a good knight in every way. He's a powerful knight. He is, we see him fighting for the good. He is a champion that people are seeking out here, even though Lancelot is present, right? Damsels are coming to seek Sir Palamides out because it is known that he is a great defender of damsels. Um, we can see, um, uh, we can see Palamides, um, his worship, right? His reputation, um, I talked about how how close Palamides is to like the moral cliff, right? Um, Palamides has not allowed himself to become completely consumed by envy, and the result is we're we're seeing results. This is a good tournament for Palamides, um, less so from his performance. He doesn't ever win the prize in this particular tournament, but it's the extras, right? It's the pre-dinner decapitations that he features in. Uh, that are or pre-supper, excuse me, between dinner and supper, uh, uh, that uh, where he really distinguishes himself and, show, and, and proves himself to be fighting uh, uh, for the right causes and being a good guy who is getting better and better, just as people like Mordred are getting worse and worse. Now, Sir Meliagance. Uh, King Bagdemagus is the father uh, of uh, Meliagons, and of course we've known King Bagdemagus ever since he was passed over for Sir Tor for Knight of the Round Table long ago, though he's since been made a Knight of the Round Table, of course. Meliagons 
in case you have forgotten Meliagons, you shouldn't forget Meliagons because he's very important, but um, a very important minor character. Um, but he is the one you may recall who ended up fighting with Sir Lamorak because Sir Lamorak overheard him praising the beauty of Guinevere and declaring his hot love for Queen Guinevere. Um, and then Sir Lamorak ended up fighting him because he was maintaining that Morgoth was more beautiful than Guinevere, and then Lancelot breaks it up and fights with him instead. You remember that scene? That was Meliagons, right? So the Meliagons-Lancelot parallel there, both of them loving Guinevere, Meliagons loving Guinevere, it would seem inappropriately, uh, whereas Lancelot is showing him his own perspective to be uncomfortably close to Sir Meliagons's. Um we got that before, right? The thing that is revealed here is that Lancelot... King Bagnamagus is trying to keep Meliagons and Lancelot apart. He does not want them to meet. Why? Because he knows pronouns here. For he hated Sir Lancelot. Not King Bagnamagus. Meliagons. Meliagon hates Lancelot. Um, and that can you he not. Lancelot, I believe... If I'm sorting out his pronouns properly, it is Meliagon who hates Lancelot. And it is Lancelot who is ignorant of this fact. King Bagdemagus knows all of this. He knows that his son hates Lancelot. He knows that Lancelot doesn't realize this. Um, he wants to keep the two of them apart because he doesn't want his son doing anything rash. Um, okay. Okay, so getting just a little minor appearance of the minor but important character, Sir Meliagon, which I wanted to point out. And again, notice the, the point here is Lancelot's in part, one of the points here is Lancelot's obliviousness, right? He doesn't see that there's a, a problem here. And in part, I think, remember, he wasn't offended when he learned that Meliagant was fighting against Lamorak to defend the beauty of Guinevere, right? He wanted to champion it himself, but he didn't, he wasn't like, how dare you to Meliagant, right? He didn't seem to view Meliagant as a sexual rival for Guinevere. Meliagant does view Lancelot as a rival in that way, it would seem. Again, there's hatred, but the hatred is in one direction, suggesting there is, in fact, still a very significant difference between Lancelot's perspective and Meliagon's perspective, right? Okay. Lamorak mixes it up with the Gawain family, right? But Lamorak comes to their defense here. The kin of King Arthur are getting their butts kicked, and Lamorak shows up and defends them for Arthur's sake. This is a huge deal, right? So when he was departed, the king come to Sir Lamorak and thunked him of his goodness and prided him to tell him his name. Sir, sighed Sir Lamorak, wit you well, I owe you my service, but as at this time I will not abide here. For I see of mine enemies many about you. Alas, said King Arthur, knew what I will, it is Sir Lamorak de Gallus. Ah, Sir Lamorak, abide with me, and be my crown. I shall never file thee, and not so hardy in Sir Gawain's head, neither none of his brethren, to do thee wrong. Okay, so what do we learn here? Again, pausing here for a second. Sir Lamorak says to him, he asks, tell me what your name is, right? I'm not going to tell you. I owe you service, but I'm not going to stay because there are many of my enemies about you. I did this for your sake, 
but the people who surround you, whom I was just defending, are my enemies. I would not be safe with you, king. That, again, sounds like an indictment, right? Your kin are going to try to murder me, King Arthur. I cannot stay in your court, because if I do, your kin are going to kill me. With the implication, and you are not going to be able or willing to stop it, right? Arthur acknowledged, Arthur's like, oh, oh, I know who this must be. You must be Sir Lamorak, right? Both because you won't tell me your name, and that's what Sir Lamorak always does, but also because you're enemy to Gawain and stuff. Okay, you must be Lamorak. I get it. He knows all about it, right? Um, he says, by my crown, I'm not going to fail you. Stay with me, and I will keep Sir Gawain and all of his brothers from killing you. Sir, great wrong have they done me and you both. That is truth, said King Arthur, for they slew their own mother, my sister. It had been much fire and better had ye wedded her, for ye are a king's son as well as they. Ah, Jesu, mercy, said Sir Lamorak, her death shall I never forget, and if it were not at the reverence of your highness, I should be revenged upon Sir Gawain and his brethren. Truly, sighed King Arthur, I will mock you at accord. Sir, sighed Sir Lamorak, as at this time I may not abide with you, for I must to the jousters, where is Sir Launcelot and the haute prince Sir Galahalt. He's going to go join them at Sir Luz. Um, remember, Arthur can't go, so Lamorak is here where Arthur is uh, at this time. It's pretty confusing in there, but this is hard. Arthur knows about the murder of Morgos. And he seems to have done nothing about it. Remember, remember Lamarack's comment as he's standing there in his shirt, spattered with the blood of his lady. Um, and he says to Sir, Sir Gaharis, Kneeked of the table round. Right? It's, you're a knight of the round table and you do this? Right? You have done sham and evil. He has brought shame upon himself forever by his evil action, says Lamarack. Really? Not in Arthur's court, it would seem. Um, again, at least not, not to look at. What shame has he received? Where's the shame? Arthur knows all about it, and seems to have done nothing. He's like, boy, it would really would have been better if they... I'm on your side, Lamarack, right? They should have just let you marry her, right? What would have been the harm? Um, Lamarack points out his own um, what? Discretion, right? Um, forbearance? Better word. Forbearance, right? I have not taken vengeance on them. I have not challenged them to fight me to the death because of you, Arthur, right? Um, because of the reverence for your highness. I'm not going to kill your kin. But if it weren't for that, I totally would because they absolutely deserve it. Um, and he excuses himself. He clearly does not trust Arthur to protect him. He does not think he would be safe in Arthur's court. And there's every reason to believe that he's right. Whether or not King Mark's actions are an indictment against Arthur, Lamarack's position clearly is. 
Arthur looks incredibly weak here. And Sir Gawain and his brothers, of which, by the way, I don't think Gareth is included. Um, remember Gareth distancing himself from Gawain and not hanging out with him, right? Um, this is... Uh, um, getting more and more out of hand, right? He seems powerless or negligent. It's really hard to emerge from this without a negative view of Arthur. It just, it really is. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Jennifer points out that um, poor Sir Balin was, was blamed for simply failing to stop a damsel from killing herself. Um, another knight was blamed for killing a damsel accidentally, uh, but now it seems almost anything goes, right? Uh, yeah, again, worse is getting worse. It's, it's, uh, um, I think we can, this is, this is where, again, I, I think we can see there is a kind of decline here. It's hard for me not to, not to, um, to say that things are already starting to decline. Back to the tournament. So Juan the Hout Prince saw Sir Dinadon do so well. He sent unto Sir Launcelot and bade him strike him adown. And Juan that ye have done so, bring him afore me and Queen Guinevere. Thon Sir Launcelot did as he was required. Thon come Sir Lamarack and smote down many Canictes and rossed off helmes and drove all the Canictes afore him. And Sir Launcelot smote adown Sir Dinadon and mod his men to unarm him. And so brocked him to the queen, and though the haucht prince lauf at Sir Dinadan, that they make not stond. Well, sighed Sir Dinadan, yet have I no sham, for the old shrew Sir Launcelot smote me down. So they went to dinner, all the court, and had great disport at Sir Dinadan. Sir Dinadan is always, he, he is the kind of boarder, right, the kind of joker, the kind of jester, who not only makes fun of other people, but is himself the butt of the joke most of the time, too, right? Um, the old shrew Sir Lancelot. Remember, he told stories about how close friends he was with Lancelot and how he's traveled with Lancelot before, too, right? Um, uh, so here he um, um, <laughs> he can't... He's like, I can't... You know, what was I supposed to do? Sir Lancelot came after me, right? But of course, really, this is all just the setup for what we're going to get afterwards. Um, I'm gonna, well, okay, no promises. Um, this is an important, is, here's Sir Palamides, uh, second, um, active pre-dinner decapitation. So Juan the dinner, or pre-supper again, between dinner and supper is when Sir Palamides does his decapitating. So Juan the dinner was done, they blew to the field to behold Sir Palamides and Sir Corsiprin. Sir Palamides peaked his pencil in the midst of the field. A pencil, by the way, right? Not a, not a, not a pencil, a, a little flag, right? Uh, peaked his pencil in the midst of the field, and thon they hurled togethers with her spears as it were thunder, and they smote either other to the earth. And thon they pulled out their swearders and dressed their shields and lashed together mictily as michty knictes that well nigh was there no piece of harness that would hold them. For this Corsabrin was a passing felonsknicht. Than Corsabrin sighed, Sir Palamides, wilt thou release me yonder damsel and the pencil? 
Than was he wroth, he Palamides, presumably. No, he Corsabrin, sorry. Was wroth out of measure, and gaff Sir Palamides such a buffet that he kneeled upon his knee. Than Sir Palamides arose leakly and smote him upon the helm that he fell upraked to the earth. Upraked means lying on your back, by the way. It doesn't mean sitting upright. We use the word upright to mean vertical, right? Um, to be upraked means to be on your back with your face to the sky. Uh, he fell upraked to the earth, and therewithal he rasped off his helm and said, Yield thee, Corsabrin, or thou shalt die. Fie on thee, said Sir Corsabrin, and do thy worst. Then he smote off his head, and therewithal come a stink of his body when the soul departed, that there make nobody abide the savour. So was the corpus had away and buried in a wood, because he was a pinem. Okay, so this is the duel of Saracens, right? Sir Palamides and Sir Corsabrin, both of them are Saracens. Neither one of them are baptized, right? So both of them are non-Christians. Two Paynim knights between the two of them, right? And Sir Palamides wins. This is super important. Now, Tarlonio Felons, I think that's like Felonsly, like he's he's one of those dangerous knights. He's one of those felonious knights. Um, and he, uh, uh, so he's like lying in wait. There's this sense uh, with Malagrin, uh, when he was fighting Sir Alexander, we got the same emphasis that like, I don't know if it's that um, these dangerous knights, these felonious knights fight dirty uh, is the kind of the general sense that like they're more dangerous fighting on foot than other knights because they're going to like they're not going to give quarter and they're willing to fight dirty, I think, is the emphasis there. Um, but anyway. What happens when Sir Corsabrin is in, is it, it dies? This is in, this this is going to be important later, much later. Um, but I promise you there will be payoff for this. Pay special attention to this. When Sir Corsabrin dies, all of a sudden there is a horrid stink from his corpse. Um, there is this immediate, spontaneous uh, corruption of the body of Sir Corsabrin, right? So that nobody might abide the savor. Everyone, nobody can stand the smell of the corpse of Sir Corsabrin, right? Um, It is associated plainly with so and immediately after this you notice what is what is emphasized directly afterwards, right? They take the corpus and where do they bury the corpus? In the woods. Why do they bury him in the woods? Everyone's I want to make sure everyone is on board with the significance of what's happening there. All the audience would know the significance of this, right? Um you don't generally bury people in the woods, right? Exactly, Jennifer. He is not getting buried in hallowed ground. No graveyard, no churchyard for him, right? He is buried in unhallowed ground because he was a painim, right? Um, who gets buried in unhallowed ground? Um, well, let me... Um, let me be exceptionally blunt about this. People who get buried in unhallowed ground 
are the people who are going to hell. Okay? This is, we have to keep in mind, this is not a matter of opinion. This is not a matter of doubtful opinion in the Middle Ages. Um, some of these things we know for sure, right? Um, we know that suicides go to hell. We talked about this before. We also know that, uh, that paynims who are unbaptized go to hell by definition, right? So remember, this has been an issue with Sir Palamides before. Remember, La Belle is afraid for his life and intervenes to prevent Tristram killing him on a couple of early occasions because she doesn't want him to go to hell if he dies, because he's as yet unbaptized. So he is going about in jeopardy not only of his life, but of his soul, Sir Palamides is, right? Sir Corsabrin dies, a pain him in his sins. He, his, uh, his soul is going to the bad place, and he's buried in the woods for this reason. The stink is connected with this, right? The stink of his body, Juan the soul departed, right? The departure of the soul, when the soul emerges from the body of Sir Corsabrin, that, you know, downward bound soul, right? The accursed soul of Sir Corsabrin, it smells horrible, right? There is a stink that everybody can smell. Now, this is not normal. This, this, this is not like what happens all the time. Um, this is going to be called in the next passage, uh, on the next page, a miracle, Right. Normally, you don't get this kind of an external indicator of uh, people's eternal destinies. Uh, again, not that they would need it in his case, as con- but it's very definite confirmation. Sir Corsabrin is not only a painim, he was also a, ba- a wicked guy. He's a felonious knight. Um, the whole quarrel with Sir Palamides is he's trying to claim this damsel against her will. Right? He's trying to make off with this damsel, steal her lands and presumably her person as well, and she is not down with this, and she goes, um, um, uh, she goes um, to um, uh, to Sir to Sir Palamides for uh, for for shelter, uh, right, for protection. This is literally the next line. Thon they blew unto lodging, and Sir Palamides was unarmed. Then he went unto Queen Guinevere to the Haute Prince and to Sir Launcelot. Sir, sighed the Haute Prince, here have ye seen this day a great miracle by Corsabrin. What savour was there when the soul departed from the body? You see, the smell, you're smelling the soul, right? It was a miracle that they were vouchsafed this kind of external uh, uh, sign um, to show them the corruption of his soul. Therefore, we all require you to tuck the baptim upon you, and than all knictes will set the more, set the more be you. Right? Palamides, the moral of this story is you need to get yourself baptized. Right? Nobody wants this to happen to you, Sir Palamides. Sir Corsabrin was a felonious knight. You're a good knight. You're a good guy. Right? We would not want to see your soul in jeopardy when you were killed. Right? Which is going to happen sooner or later. Occupational hazard. So... We insist, get baptized, Palamides. Sir, sighed Sir Palamides, I wall that ye all canoe, that into this land I come to be christened, and in my heart I am christened, and christened wall I be. But I have mads such a vow, that I may not be christened, till I have done seven true battailes for Jesus' sack, and than will I be christened. 
and I trust that God will talk mine intent, for I mean truly. Than Sir Palamides pried Queen Guinevere and Haute Prince to sup with him, and so he did both Sir Launcelot and Sir Lamorak and many other good connectus. So they all go to supper, uh, of course, because somebody's just gotten decapitated. Um, Sir Palamides won't be christened. Um, not because he doesn't want to convert to Christianity, but because he says, truth is, I'm already a Christian in my heart. I came to England. I came, he, comes, he came to this land with the intention of being christened. In his heart, he's already christened. Uh, and he plans to be christened. He's not going to not go there. Why has he not been baptized yet? Because he made a vow that he won't be christened until he has done seven true battles for Jesus's sake, for Jesus' sake, right? Then he's going to be christened. And he trusts that God will talk mine intent, for I mean truly. Sir Palamides thinks that there's a chance he won't go to hell if he's killed even before he's baptized because he trusts that God will take his intent. He has committed himself to, to Christendom, right? Uh, to being christened. Uh, to fighting for Jesus' sake. Even though he's not gone through the ritual yet, he's only waiting because he's sworn that he's going to do true, true, uh, um, uh, true battles first, right? Um... We have never seen anything like this for Sir Palamides before, right? Sir Palamides is like living this secret life, right? This secret life of virtue. He's the Saracen knight who's been this outsider, right? But it turns out that he is an outsider not because he is less Christian than the other knights, but almost in a sense because he's more Christian than the other knights. He takes Christianity way more seriously than pretty much any other knight that we've met, right? That's kind of amazing. That's kind of a big deal. Again, Palamides is shifting. It's been a long time since he has had a moment, right, where he's, like, wanted to kill Sir Tristram uh, and been eaten up by his envy, right? Sir Palamides at this point seems to be on a pretty good path. And here he is with Sir Launcelot and Sir Lamarack and many other good Knictas. And of course, um, of course, uh, Sir Gawain and his brothers are not invited into that tent. Um, uh, uh, Michelle, yeah. So is there indication that uh, the stench was because Corsabrin was evil besides being a pagan? Yeah, that word uh, felonce uh, by itself it, it, it tells us about his moral character. The whole purpose of their battle, he was fighting in, in a wrong quarrel. Um, he was uh, trying to, like abduct that damsel against her will. Um, and, and that's the cause that, you know, in the middle, he's like, Palamides, give me the damsel that I want. Who's like begging Palamides to defend her. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Michelle Corsabrin is definitely, he's not just technically, you know, da- he's not damned on a technicality. Right. Um, he's definitely one of the bad guys, uh, in this, uh, in this scenario. 
But again, that stench that they were smelling was his soul. Remember that. Remember that sometimes, by a miracle, you might be able to smell the state of somebody's soul when they die. That's one of the take-home lessons, one of the big take-home lessons here. As I said, there will be a payoff for this. It's going to take us a long time, but there will eventually be a payoff. Don't forget the stench of Sir Corsabrin. David, I have no idea what counts as a true battle for Jesus. I don't know what circumstances under which he's going to be battling for Jesus' sake. It seems likely that he would be would find more battles for Jesus' sake if he went somewhere else, like, say, uh, uh, Jerusalem. Uh, I, I don't know, is this a thing that comes up uh, in the countryside in Logris on a regular basis? I don't know. I, I, I have no idea, um, David, what counts there and what he's thinking about. But anyway, I'm so close. All right, I'm just going to plow through because we're away next week anyway. And at the middest of his dinner, in comes Sir Dinadan, and began to rail. This is Galahalt. And began to rail. He's making jokes, right? And then he beheld the hout prince, that him seemed wroth with some fout that he saw. For he had a condition that he loved no fish, and because he was served with fish, and hotted it, and therefore he was not merry. And when Sir Dinadan had espied the hout prince, he espied where was a fish with a great head, and anon he got betwixt two dishes, and served the hout prince with that fish. And then he sighed thus, Sir Galahalt, well may I liken you to a wolf, for he will never eat fish but flesh. And anon the hout prince laugh at his waterdis. Well, well, sighed Sir Dinadan to Sir Launcelot, what devil do ye in this country? For here may no mean connectis win no worship for thee. I ensure thee, Sir Dinadan, sighed Sir Launcelot, I shall no more meet with thee, nor with thy great spear, for I may not sit in my saddle when thy spear hitteth me, and I be happy, I shall be, I shall beware of thy boiteous body that thou bearest. Well, sighed Sir Launcelot, Mock good watch ever, God forbid, that ever we meet, but it be at a dish of meat. Then laugh the queen and the hout prince, that they meek not sit at their table, and thus they mod great joy till on the morn. First of all, don't you love how much laughing everybody does in this part? The number of times that Queen Guinevere is literally R-O-F-L, <laughs> right, in this whole sequence, right? Uh, that Queen Guinevere is laughing so much that she cannot sit in her chair, right? Um, happens all the time. Now, um, I think there's... I, I don't want to go into huge detail on these passages, I just want to point out a few things. First of all, so many times, and I've said this before, so many times it's hard to tell when you're reading a work of medieval literature. There's, there'll be something that seems funny, right? But you're not sure if it's funny or not, or if it's like, is this supposed to be funny or is this not supposed to be funny, right? Is this just funny to me as a modern reader reading this? Did they mean this seriously and only I think it's funny because my values are so different? Or do they think this is funny? Often that happens. Um, 
here we're get like this is like labeled jokes. <laughs> These are jokes which are being broadcast as jokes with a laugh track and everything, right? So we get here clear bona fide comedy by Maori. And it's strange, funny, and interesting. The line about the wolf, right? The, like the bringing the, that he chooses a fish with a particularly large head uh, and gives it to him and then makes the joke about the wolf. I don't really, I don't feel like I'm getting the wolf joke entirely. Um, I have the vague feeling that, um, I have the vague feeling that, uh, um, that, Sir Dinadin's line is funnier than I think it is. I, it's just me. I, I'm not sure. I'm not seeing the humor, and I feel like it's my fault. It's not. It's clearly not Sir Dinadin's fault. Um, the banter between Sir Dinadin and Sir Lancelot. We have seen Sir Dinadin bantering. One of the things that has made Sir Dinadin's banter funny is that he's a one. He's the only one bantering, right? Sir Tristram is being totally earnest, and Sir Dinadin is bantering. Right. Sir Dinadin is giving Sir Tristram a hard time while Sir Tristram carries on uh, being zealous in his knighthood. Right. Um, here we see Lancelot bantering back. Notice that Sir Lancelot gets the bigger speech. Right. He makes more jokes. Sir Dinadin makes a pretty simple joke. Right. What are you doing here, Lancelot? Now nobody else is going to get to win worship because you're here. Right. So him kind of teasing Sir Lancelot, fairly simple. Right. Look at the elements of Sir Lancelot's back talk, right? His return banter. Um, he teases him like, I am so, with thy great spear, right? Oh, when you come at me with your great spear, I, can, I can't sit in my saddle when your spear hits me, right? Oh, man, like, I, there's no way I can stand up to you, Sir Dinadin, right? Um... I need to beware of thy boiteous body, right? Thy boister, your boisterous, your rough uh, and rugged person, right? Notice the alliteration. Boiteous body that thou bearest. I don't think that's an accident. Um, yeah, Sharon, I, that, I was thinking that too. Um, uh, the alliteration is funny. The, and why is the alliteration funny? Is the alliteration funny because there's still the sense of, like, old-style heroic verse about it? Is that why it's funny? That Sir Lancelot, by alliterating like this, is sort of painting Sir Dinadin like he's the great hero of the of the epic, right? Um, with thy boiteous body that thou betterest. Uh, you know, I, I shall beware of thee, right? Um... God forbode that ever we meet, but it be at a dish of meat. He makes a pun. Uh, the pun is funny, right? So puns are funny to Lancelot. Lancelot makes puns. Um, may we only ever meet at a dish of meat, which I do suspect Michelle is uh, uh, is is also a returning to the fish joke as well. Um, the meat versus fish, right? But notice the other thing that Lancelot does there. Mock goad watch ever. Be on the lookout, he says. So, just as Sir Dinadin does not always say what he means, 
right? We'll sardonically say that, oh, I am plagued by these knights like Lancelot and Tristram, whereas the narrator is continuing to go out of his way to remind us again and again that Sir Dinadin loves all good knights. And he's particularly devoted to Sir Tristram and Sir Lancelot, um, but he, though he gives them a really hard time, right? Lancelot is giving Sir Dinadin a hard time in exactly the same way, but in the midst of it, he says, mock good watch ever. Be on the lookout, right? Already we can see this um, this kind of warning, right, uh, that maybe something else is going to happen. Earlier that day, you know, he, uh, Lancelot, knocked Sir Dinanen off his horse because it was funny, right, and brought him back as a prisoner, uh, unarmed, so that everybody could laugh at him, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, the next day. So Sir Dinadan departed and took his horse and met with Mani Knictis and did passing well. And as he was departed, Sir Launcelot disguised himself and put upon his armor a maiden's garment, freshly attired. Then Sir Launcelot mod Sir Galihodin to lead him through the round. And all men had wonder what damsel was that. Yeah, I bet they were. First of all, she's got to be proportioned slightly oddly if he's put the damsel's clothing outside his armor, right? Which, because he put upon his armor, the maiden's garment, right? So this has got to be the bulkiest damsel they've ever seen, you know, riding around. I, 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 no wonder they're marveling. And so as Sir Dinadan come into the round, Sir Launcelot, that was in the damsel's array, got Sir Galihodin's spear and ran unto Sir Dinadan. So first we had the shield maiden who put the armor on to smite Sir Alessander on the head. Now we have Sir Lancelot cross-dressing in order to... Uh, um, uh, in, order to <laughs> in order to take out Sir Dinadan. <laughs> right? Oh, man. Um, and always, he, Sir Dinadan, looking up there as Sir Launcelot was. Sir Dinadan knows Sir Launcelot is going to do something, right? He knows. He, he took the, you know, watch uh, reference uh, in Sir Launcelot's joke, right? And he's on the watch, right? He knows. He, he smells it coming, Right? And then he saw on sit on the steed of in the steed of Sir Launcelot armed. So somebody's sitting in Sir Launcelot's place in armor. So he can't tell it so it looks like Sir Launcelot's there, so he's he's in the clear, right? But when Sir Dinadan saw a manner of a damsel, he drawed perilous, lest it should be Sir Launcelot disguise it. He smells it out as soon as he sees him coming, right? Oh great. Here comes Sir Launcelot dressed as a girl. But Sir Launcelot come on him so fast that he smote Sir Dinadan over his horse croup. And anon great coistrons got Sir Dinadan. Coistrons, by the way, are ladle washers. Uh, these are like kitchen hands and stuff. They're, they're uh, um, um, you know, the, uh, the local staff that Sir Launcelot has gotten to help him here. And anon great coistrons got Sir Dinadan, and into the forest there beside. And there they despoiled him unto his shirt, and put upon him a woman's garment, and so brocked him into the field. And so they blew into lodging, and every knicked went and unarmed them. 
and Van was Sir Dinadon brocked in among them all, and Juan, Queen Guinevere, saw Sir Dinadon, he brocked in so among them all, Van she loch, that she fell down, and so did all that there was. Well, said Sir Dinadon, Sir Launcelot, thou art so false that I can never be ware of thee. Oh, man. Um, I don't even have anything to say. This is just, this is just, it's, this is the kind of passage that almost nobody remembers happens in Sir Thomas Mowry. You know, I mean, um, mostly because people don't read the book of Sir Tristram, so they miss this stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, we can remember, of course, the joke that they played on King Mark. Right where they dressed up Sir Dagonet as uh, uh, and Sir Dinadon, of course, was behind this, um, pretending that he was Sir Lancelot and having him going chasing after King Mark, pretending to be uh, Sir Lancelot, who was gonna, uh, I don't know what, kill him with his own hands or something. Now, of course, as we saw, that was sort of made, uh, um, that was foreshadowing as well, right? And of course, it didn't end well because then Sir Palamides, you know, beat all seven of them, um, but. Uh, you know, here we have more pure fun, right? More just uh, uh, the emphasis is the laughter. Um, and Sir Dinadin, he doesn't mind. He loves all good knights, right? Um, the lack of malice in this, right? The, the fact that this tournament is marked not by hatred, not by envy, not by hard feelings, not by... Remember at the last tournament, the tournament of the Castle of Ladies, we had, like, Sir Tristram doing great, but accidentally killing this dude's three sons, which led to him being imprisoned, right? We don't get any of that. The only people that get killed are the people who deserve it, and the emphasis is not on the envy and the wrath and the... Um, uh, you know, the vying for position and the eye will never be on that side because Sir Palamides is on that side or whatever. Um, it's on fun, right? It's on the, like, the whole community spirit. Whose side wins? Who cares, right? Um, who does best this day? We don't even know, right? I mean, nobody even... Everyone's like, oh, Sir Lancelot wins the prize this day for dressing up like a girl and taking out Sir Dinadin because that was hilarious, right? Um that's how you win the prize uh, at this uh, at this particular tournament. Um, it's really cool, I think, to see this sort of glimpse into like what it's like in the good guys camp, right? Um, we we might have Mordred out there lurking in the bushes, looking to find ways to bring shame onto good knights that he comes across, but then we have um, um, then we have. Sir Dinadin and Sir Lancelot and uh, Sir Galahalt and Sir Galahodins and uh, Sir Palamides and Sir Lamorak and all of them um, gathered around uh, and just enjoying each other and laughing until they fall on the floor, right? Um, now, Zach and Jennifer, you are correct. Arthur is absent. Gawain is conspicuously absent. Arthur is also absent. Is there a cause and effect there? I don't know. I mean, I don't think it's an indictment of Arthur that he misses the fun or that, like, had he been there, there would have been less fun. I don't know. It's possible that that's the case, but I'm not really... Uh, um, 
I'm not really, uh, uh, I'm not confident of that. Um, one of the consequences I think of all this is to show us when the round table collapses, when the Arthurian court dissolves, it's not just going to be a political disaster. This fellowship, right? These are people who actually enjoy each other's company, right? There's fun in Arthur's court. Um, it's fun to be one of the good guys in Arthur's court. Um, there's, you know, it's, it's just this sort of other angle on the uh, tragedy. Um, yeah, anyway. All right, I've kept everybody super late tonight. Totally irresponsible of me. I wanted to finish this up, though. I couldn't uh, go without the Sir Dinadin scenes here, uh, especially since we're going to miss ne next week. So no class next week. We'll return for Joyous Guard. Um, and I think we get another... No, it's not the other tournament after that. What do we get after Joyous I'm forgetting already what I assigned after Joyous Guard. Oh, the Red City. Yeah. Um, and then we get the tournament at Lana Zepp, which is the third of these big... We've got the Castle of Maidens, Sir Luz, and then the tournament at Lana Zepp. Um, which is uh, uh, which is going to be the, the week after that. So, Joyous Guard next time um, as uh, we begin again. We're mostly done with Tristram, but we've got some more stuff to do. So, thanks everybody for joining me. Uh, kudos to everybody, Curry. I see that. Kudos to everybody who managed to stay awake. Uh, and uh, uh, I will see you guys in a fortnight. Good night now. The Mythgard Academy has been offering in-depth discussions of awesome books and films since 2013, completely free to attend and free to download. If you've enjoyed our discussions and would like to help them continue, please consider donating at signumuniversity.org fund.